We've penned, if you like, entering in Magnolia Lane as entering virtually a sporting and a golfing cathedral. Closest, I think, that we have to it is the All England Club at Wimbledon. I asked a past chairman of Augusta and he smiled and he said, Ken, that might not be a, a total coincidence. Welcome to the CPG podcast, brought to you by the Confederation of Professional Golf. Hello and welcome. My name is Ian Randall. I'm the Chief Executive of the Confederation of Professional Golf, or, or CPG. And welcome to this, the first of our new series of podcasts that I'll be hosting over the coming months, talking to people from across the golf industry and friends of CPG. Obviously, it's been a truly extraordinary year in so many ways, and golf has faced many challenges, but we've faced them head on. And as a result, I think golf is flourishing in so many ways. And participation is up in so many of our member countries and obviously when we talk masters we uh, we're normally celebrating the start of the of the golfing season but this year for so many it's the end rather than the beginning and obviously what we're bringing in is history in the first four masters which is already bringing with it so much interest and intrigue what does augusta national look like in november is it playing significantly differently Will Bryson overpower the course and will the, the distance debate dominate conversation? And we've already seen so many fascinating things this week. The greatly expanded and, and brilliant content that the Masters are putting out there is, is fantastic. The course looks picture perfect, as always. John Rahm's had two hole-in-ones before the week even before the tournament even starts, which is, uh, and if anybody saw yesterday's, it was uh, a quite extraordinary hole-in-one. So for today's Masters special, I'm delighted to be joined by three people who I am I'm very proud to, to call friends, three people who have been and continue to make a huge impact on both the CPG and golf as a whole, and three of golf's most influential administrators. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us and making the time to do so um, today. Firstly, our current CPG Honorary President, Vice President of the French Golf Federation, and the man responsible for driving, with huge success, the 2018 Ryder Cup in Paris, Pascal Grisot. Good evening. Long-time Chairman of the CPG, Chief Executive of the PGA of Great Britain and Ireland, Sandy Jones. Sandy, thank you again for joining us. And thirdly, and not, not least, our own World Golf Hall of Famer, CPG Board Director, former executive director of the European Tour, and uh, to some, best known as a, a Golf Channel analyst. So we've got somebody here with uh, proper media experience, uh, uh, Ken. So uh, great to have you along with us as well. And I wanted to start today's podcast with just Masters memories, really. I think my first memory would probably be when I was really starting to play golf back in 1986. I think I was probably, I was 13. And obviously Jack made that a very memorable Masters tournament. Since then, I've been very privileged to spend time in Augusta National since 2008. And like myself, each of you have managed to spend a considerable amount of time and had the, the privilege of spending time at Augusta National. So I wondered if we might just start with some first impressions, some memories of, of, of how it all got started, what, uh, what Augusta National means to you and, and, and how you've seen the, uh, any kind of special memories that you have. And perhaps, Ken, you could kind of 
kick us off because I'm I'm guessing that you may have been the first of of any of the four of us to be in attendance. Well, thank you, Ian, and uh, good evening both to Pascal and to Sandy. It's wonderful to be joining this uh, podcast. My first visit was in 1987, and uh, the abiding memory I have is it's probably the only time I was privileged to go back 29 more times, making uh, around 30 visits in all. But in 1987, it's probably the only time that I walked inside the, the gallery rope with a player and I did so uh, coming back up the 10th fairway with Seve Ballesteros. Many people will remember the 87 Masters for Larry Mize holding that uh, outrageous uh, pitch shot to beat Greg Norman on the 11th hole. But people, and I will never forget that Seve was also in that playoff, but unfortunately he three-putted the 10th hole. And I felt it was my duty to walk back up with him and his caddy because clearly Seve was inconsolable and understandably so. And as we parted at the very top of the 10th tee, I simply said to him once that Gary Player had often used, remember Seve, you are a great champion. Nobody defeated you over 72 holes. And that was all that was said. And uh, what I do know is that uh, Seve used that uh, statement and that comment, if you like, with members of the British media later in that uh, next week when he travelled to Cannes Mujan and actually defeated Ian Woosnam in a playoff uh, to win the next Sunday. So that's my, that's my first of many wonderful memories at, at Augusta. You were obviously executive director of the European Tour from 1975, or you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, and involved with the tour before then. But 1987 was your first opportunity to be there. So I guess, um, you know, and now we see such a huge influx of, uh, of European, both administrators and players, at, obviously, at the event. Anything to recount, I guess, at, at those early days? Yes, it was very difficult, I think, until really uh, Seve, of course, won in 1980 and then again in 1983. But until, until that moment, really, the only, the only uh, European players who could get access to play at Augusta would have been a major champion and or the number one player only in our season-long order of merit. And uh, it was therefore very, very restricted to our players. And certainly, as, as far as our officials were concerned, um, the, first, the first year that we did receive one invitation one uh, accredited spot was actually 1986 and George O'Grady went uh, in, my, in my place in 1986. I had ruptured an Achilles tendon three weeks before the Masters. So George was our advance guard in 86. And really it was one, throughout the 80s, it was one pass only for us until into the 90s we managed to get both of us in and then it, it obviously increased from there but it was a different time Ian with different people. Yeah totally and obviously your, yours and George's impact was huge because you then went on to win seven of the next nine and Europeans went on to win the next seven of nine Masters tournaments so I think you can take great credit for that Ken. Well, it was 92 my first visit, so Ken was well established there and was he was a great guide to me when I turned up there on your first visit and you don't really know just where everything is. And I got to see Ken and ultimately George as well were very great guides to me. And then when Lord Darby passed away, he gave the PGA four of the tickets that 
his tickets that we could get access in future years with, and we, and we did use them. And happy days, and Ken and I certainly had some happy days, but it was always a special place. It was a place you always looked forward to going to. I can remember the first day I went there, and as a kid playing golf, I always dreamt of maybe someday I'll go to the Masters. Uh, not as a player, never dreamt that, but always someday I'd be able to see the place and the first day I got there, it lashed down with rain from the moment I arrived to the moment I left. And I thought, I'm not sure this place is that good in April. It's, uh, the weather's not that good. But it was the start of many years of pleasure. And over the years, I've got to say that the people of Augusta and the people of Augusta and the Masters were very kind and very generous and always wanted to make it a good experience for you. And I always found that. And over the years, I had many, many happy memories going back. And I've been reflecting on them today when I think of the time, but I can't think there were many memories where Ken wasn't involved with me in them. <laughs> so, so uh, and Ken's re recollection of, of the, the things that he saw and, and did there and the people we met, I think, is up to date and, and always will be with him. And it was just a privilege. And it's a privilege as a kid growing up outside Glasgow someday to finish up in Augusta and 17, I didn't do as many as Ken, 17, but those are happy memories and we just feel so privileged to have been part of it somewhere down the line. And, you know, I'm sitting here on a November night, dark night, wet night, thinking how lucky have you been in your life to have had that experience and shared it with so many people over there. And it just feels strange in November because I always look forward that Augusta was a starting season for us up in Scotland in those days. When you got to the uh, Masters was on, that was the start for our season. So uh, I'm looking forward to it this year. But, you know, the thing about Augusta for me is, and, and those who have managed Augusta, I think they've been superb over many, many long years in putting the, the, the tournament and the club in the position it's in, respected across the whole golfing world. And I think that, that you know, there's been a lot of people, and I just looked out my history of Augusta book tonight, and it's a great book to read because you realise some of the, the challenges that they had to go through, but how they mastered them all. And I think master is the right word. So I'm looking forward to this week and it'll be interesting because it'll be colder. The ball won't fly so far and the course will be playing a bit longer. So, And the game has changed so much with technology. So it'll be interesting to see how this week goes. I'm really looking forward to it as I'm sure we all are. You never knew who you were going to bump into on that golf course when you walked it. And as Ken said, he walked with Seve. And it was fantastic to have those moments watching it. Pascal, I guess you may have been a little more recent with your first Masters, but what was your first experience? I remember I came for the first time in 2006 because I was the captain of our national team. And Julien Guerrier, who won the British Amateur in 2006, we were invited by Pierre Bechman, who is a French member at Augusta, in November 2006, so exactly at the same uh, period. And Pierre took us to Augusta just to give the opportunity to Julien Guerrier to practice uh, on this uh, fantastic course. And I must say that my first impact for me was, was huge because it was visiting Augusta was a little bit like uh, when you visit Venice for the first time and you are in love. So, you know, it's such an iconic place that I was so blessed to be there. And I was, was happy to be there because I was with the best uh, French uh, amateur. And uh, 
I remember at this time he wanted to turn pro in 2005 and I told him as a captain that maybe it would be better if he could wait for one more year and the French Golf Federation could support him to play the best tournament in the world and uh, one year after he won the British Amateur. So, you know, I was so happy and I was so happy to share with him and Pierre Beschman the fact that uh, it was my first moment in uh, in Augusta. And after, but I will tell you other stories, I came back for many years uh, because I was in charge of the bidding process for to host the Ryder Cup. And I came the second time in 2007 because Julien Guerrier was uh, playing uh, Augusta this year. And after I came back in 2009 for the second time, and it was in in the middle of the bidding process to host the, the Ryder Cup. You knocked it round under par yourself the first time there, Pascal, knowing you. Uh, Augusta is such a difficult course, but in November, you know, it's totally different because the weather was, it was good weather, but it was cold and the ball was not flying the same way that the ball can fly in in April and the course was long, very, very long. But, you know, it was it was such a fantastic, two, there were two fantastic two days and uh, each day we were playing uh, 36 holes. We were starting as soon as it was possible and we were coming back to the clubhouse when, the, when it was dark. So it was two full days. Absolutely. And uh, I, it looks like the, uh, the weather this week looks quite mild for November over there. Maybe a, maybe a little wet, which will, again will play long, but we'll, we'll talk more about distance, I suppose, later on. Obviously, one of the things that the Masters is so special in so many ways because of the legacy, the traditions and the, the whole status of the championship that they've created. I was reading last night about when they introduced the green jacket and how iconic that's that's become. And Back in 1937, the green jacket was brought out so that the members could be identified to provide advice and, uh, and knowledge to the, um, uh, to the patrons. And then uh, I, I was reading that not until 1949 did then the green jacket actually get to get won by the, uh, worn by the, the champion. And obviously just a, a fantastic tradition that, that, that's become there. But I mean, in many ways, a golf club has elevated itself to such a, a huge level. Ken, any thoughts on you know exactly that and how it's how they've been so really smart, clever in building the Masters brand in the way that they have over the years? Yes, well, I think Ian, from the very moment that Clifford Roberts, uh, as a great entrepreneur and lover of of the game of golf joined with Bobby Jones as the great player of his era, if you like, Mm. in finding the then um, gardens, if you like, in downtown Augusta and having them built with the great Mackenzie into the Augusta that we now know um, and started their invitational tournament. They've had an eye for this history. They've had the resource uh, with wonderful husbandry and, and promotion of the tournament to, if you like, make this great history and continue it. They also always, until this year, have held that first full week in April. So many people, including Greg Norman, when he was number one in the world, may have played some golf tournaments in on the American uh, PGA Winter Tour up to Augusta, but they always had that feeling. And as, as Craig then said, the start of the season 
and certainly the start of the season for those of us living in the Northern Hemisphere was yeah. always Master's Week. I think that they've maintained that wonderful uh, tradition. On occasion, we've penned, if you like, entering in Magnolia Lane as entering virtually a sporting and a golfing cathedral. Uh, the closest, I think, that we have here in, in the United Kingdom to it is the All England Club at Wimbledon. I asked a past chairman of Augusta or gave him that view and he smiled and he said, Ken, that might not be a, a total coincidence because unknown to me, the members of the All England Club and the, the uh, members of Augusta National pooled their ideas and thoughts back in the day. And uh, I could give no, no higher praise to either sporting venue. I think we all are very proud of the All England Club and the Wimbledon Championships uh, here uh, in the United Kingdom. And I think the Masters uh, resonates similarly uh, for us, those of us who love and have had the privilege of working in golf and attending the Masters. Bobby Jones, Clever, Clifford Roberts, etc. These people in those early days set the standards and the value that the club should have. And the thing I admire it for is that obviously they haven't been able to live all through the period of history up until now. But those who have followed have stuck with those values and stuck with how it should be uh, and delivered it so well that, you know, that it's never gone off course. And I think that's, you know, we, we know lots of people have started good things and then people come along behind and change it and twist it and it goes off the rails. That has never happened in Augusta and no, never will. And in fact, if anything has ever happened, they've always quietly just improved something that just brings it into the modern time. You think of the technology of the game today, they've addressed that technology and haven't lost the pot with it. I know they've run into the tees and some of the fairways and things, but they've never in any way taken the course backwards or taken the club backwards. Everything has always moved forward. And I think that is an amazing achievement for all the people who have been at some time privileged to be leaders within that club to keep taking it forward. And I think we could all learn lessons from that across the game. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I remember my my first time there, they were still on the old on the old practice ground, which was quite <laughs> it was it was pretty small and still the members' yeah. practice ground at Augusta National. Yeah. And then and then turned up the year the, the following year and all of a sudden the world's best practice ground has been created and yeah. uh, looks looks like it's been there forever. And uh, yeah, that's just kind of the evolution. That you that you see of it when we're fortunate to, to return, Pascal. I guess you'll have seen some changes even in the shorter time since you were first there, particularly in the, the way that the golf course has been changed, um, adapted to to modern play. Uh, first, I think that unfortunately the spectators they can't realize all the all the infrastructure that you can have on site because it's so huge. Yes, the course is. Is, is part of the history, but since now, I think the, the last 10 years, they have, they have done so many investments. You know, the media center has totally changed, the administrative center has totally changed, and, it's, and everything is huge. You know, we were, you were talking about the new practice facilities. Yes, in 2006, I remember when I came for the first time, I had the opportunity to practice on the old uh, practice range. And uh, as you said, it was small. And I don't know 
I think when I came back in 2009, they had already this new uh, practice and it was absolutely amazing, you know, with two fairways, one if the, the players want to practice a draw or if they want to practice a fade, uh, you have all the all the, the, the different shots that you can play and this practice was absolutely amazing and, and, and I think that it was now maybe in, in, you can find very uh, good practice facilities but I think that at the beginning maybe Augusta was the first to have such uh, fantastic facilities and uh, and the course yes what is fantastic it's not that they, they have done many modifications on the course uh, maybe quite uh, every year but when you come back the year after, you can't uh, realize that they have built a new tee because it's exactly as as if this tee was always there. And you, you, you even not remember where was the, the old tee, uh, maybe 10 meters or 20 meters in front, but you, you can't even imagine where was the tee because everything has been redesigned, rebuilt, exactly as if it has been always uh, like that uh, in the past and this is absolutely incredible and I don't know if there is another course in the world where they have done so many modifications where you can't imagine how it was in the past. And not just the course as you say it's also the the entire infrastructure I mean the the new media center well relatively new media center is phenomenal and it just these things uh, these things just occur there and they do it in such an understated way as you've said. You, you would do it much better than myself, but you could speak about the marketing because the marketing, it's, it's, it's the supreme marketing in, in the world. What they are doing in, in one week, you know, it, I think it's the only, to- in, only tournament where you can buy the merchandise only in Augusta. You can't buy the, the Augusta brand on a website. The only opportunity to buy anything is to be on the golf course and to be part of the adventure and I think it's unique uh, you know uh, uh, I'm quite sure that if you play Wingfoot this week this week you will be able to buy a t-shirt from uh, Wingfoot but in Augusta it's impossible you can only buy uh, merchandise in Augusta first time ever this year we, there is an online shop but it's it's restricted. Ah, it's the first time it's, it's restricted to patrons and guests so I've been um, ah. I, I've been <laughs> I've been spending plenty of time looking and they, they, they now have a Masters gnome to celebrate the, um, uh, the November Masters, I think, which would be a limited edition, I would, I would think. But yeah, you're exactly right. That's uh, it's exactly how they, um, they protect and value and add value to their brand in, in everything that they do, which is, uh, again, taking Sandy's point is, is something which we can, we can all learn more and, and they embody the brand as well. So. They are also very lucky because it's the only tournament, only major tournament, which is played every year on the same site. So they can really reinvest year after year because they know that next year they will organize a new Masters. So it's give them the opportunity to invest and always to improve the facilities. I'd like to talk a little bit about European success uh, as we've got some uh, very influential people in European golf uh, here. And obviously it, it, uh, it means so much to us. And um, obviously 1980 was the first winner with, with Sevi, who, um, who we've mentioned. And Sandy, you told me a good story about one of your experiences with, with Sevi on the phone yesterday. 
Yeah, I remember Stevie was out practicing one time and, it, and I was hanging around not much to do that particular day. And I walked out with Stevie, walked out down the bottom end of the course. He, he shouted over, he said, you can walk with me if you want, <laughs> which was on, I wasn't expecting it. But anyway, I said, well, well, I'll just walk a few holes. Finished up walking about 15, I think. And I said to him, he said to me, you know, this is a great golf course because it's, it's the tightest golf course in the world, which I didn't see it that way because they leave the, the rough high. It was cut down pretty low. And I always thought, well, I could usually find my ball if I miss the fairway. So that's that's quite helpful. And I said to Sammy, why do you say it's the tightest course? And he said, because I'm the best player in the world and you're just the chief executive. That's why. But I'll explain it to you. Every tee he stood on, he said, I'll just explain to you where you've got to land us. He had these targets in his head for every golf hole on that course, and I'll never forget it. He said, you've got to hit that target, like an archer hits an archery target. He said, because when you're there, you're in the perfect position to play onto the green because you're playing into the slope of the green. If you're not in that target area, you're always coming across the slope. So if you're coming across the slope, you can't hold the ball. You can't hold it on those greens. You must play into the, the slope of the green. And you can think of them, we've all been there you can go through it in your head the slope on those greens and when you start thinking about coming down a fairway and which way that green lies everything said they said was spot on and I watched all the players that year trying to play those holes and I could see where they were in the right position or the wrong position and I just thought what a, what a lesson that was and how to play that golf course if you get out of position and you can't fire it into the green against the slope you're always going to in danger of coming off the green or in an impossible position on the green. And that was such a, a, a nice conversation that day. And I just walked on and we shook hands at the end. I said, thanks for the lesson. I really enjoyed that. It'll work with me forever and it still does. And I think that's the secret of Augusta, actually, for the, the players who have been successful there. They know, they've known their way around over some or years of experience. But when you're a first-timer on Augusta, I think it's hard work for them. But it's very hard to figure out as he had figured out most things in the golf course. So that was one of my greatest days there. I keep saying I've had great days with Ken there, but Ken, I've got to say, Sebi just edged you that day. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sebi edges it for everybody. And uh, yeah, you talked about how privileged you felt. I mean, most people yeah. don't get to experience Augusta, but to experience Augusta in the company of Sebi just takes it to a, a, another level altogether, Sandy. And it was just one of these things you walked into a situation. And when Sebi said, you want to walk, see, <laughs> what was I going to say? No, no, I'll come back tomorrow. I decided that was that I was going. And it was great. And it's one of my greatest memories of the yeah. game across my whole lifetime, really. So fantastic. And I know Ken has shared many moments with many of these great players. And I'm sure he appreciates those moments as I do. Well, we're all privileged. Totally. Yeah. And. And obviously, Sebi got around there fairly successfully a few times, which was great. So he must have known what he was talking about with the right spots. I wonder how those those targets have moved, particularly this year with uh, with some of the length. And uh, but before we get onto that, Ken, I, a couple of years ago at our annual conference, you did a fantastic question and answer with with Jose Maria Alathabal. Obviously, he's another Spaniard with great success around Augusta, and it was so nice yesterday to see him coaching John Rahm, who. I'm assuming after two holes in one this week doesn't need too much coaching. But, you know, again, just if you could just expand a little bit on those, you know, obviously Bernard Langer went on to follow success from, from Seve. And then, you know, Europe just got amazing success through the, the late 80s and, uh, and early 90s. Um, 
you just expand a bit on that? Yes, well, I think uh, I think Sandy's story on Seve is so appropriate, Ian, because in 1980, when he became the first European to win the green jacket, and indeed the first international player other than Gary Player to win at Augusta, and then he followed up in 1983 with his second win, he, I think, gave the other Europeans the belief that they could go to Augusta and beat the great Americans of, of the day. You've mentioned Bernard Langer. He won in 85. And of course, uh, that became a banner year for, for European golf because Sandy Lyle won the Open Championship at Royal St. George's and Europe regained the Ryder Cup at the, at the Belfry. Uh, and we know how wonderful the Ryder Cup has become, if you like, on the back of that and many other successes. But talking of Jose Maria, the first time really that he showed was in Ian Woosnam's year in 91, when a, only a bogey at the, at the very final hole kept Jose Maria out of the playoff with, with Ian. And uh, we know how really disappointed, heart-wrenching bogey that he had, but he put that behind him three years later and uh, the first of his two wins in, in 94. And I always remember sitting, uh, may have shared that story with you at, at the Congress with him, when, uh, as, as we know, in the last year, we've lost his great uh, mentor and friend, Sergio Gomez. But I was sitting with Sergio Gomez outside the clubhouse and in no way wanted to interfere with Jose Maria going out uh, to embark upon his final uh, uh, winning round, if you like. But I sat with, with, with Sergio and simply as Jose Maria passed, I just wished him good luck. And he stopped and he smiled and he had steel spikes then, not soft spikes, steel spikes. And he tapped them on the concrete as if giving me uh, a nudge to the fact that the greens were rock firm. And he was very, very confident on the day. And he saw off Greg Norman and Davis Love for the first of his two green jackets. And uh, that continued, as you say, in the 80s and the 90s were great years. But for those five guys, and of course, others have followed since. Yeah. And then, and then Tiger took on dom domination for a little while. And then obviously a bit more recently, some, some further European success with, with Danny and... Um, uh, and good, yes. making, making their breakthroughs, which, uh, which is and great. We, and I think we very much hope, I think the leading ranked uh, European going into uh, this year's Masters is John Ram. And I think many of us feel that he will be a legitimate uh, European challenger in what is, is obviously a very strong American strike force with DeChambeau, with uh, Brooks, Brooks Kepka and with Dustin Johnson, three real, real heavyweight uh, Goliaths, if you like. Pascal, I think um, more memories from you. I think you mentioned one 2011 to me. <laughs> 2011 was very special. So I told you that I came back to Augusta after 2007. I came back for the second time in 2007, and it was because France has decided to, to bid to host uh, the Ryder Cup. And at that time, you know, it was very important to be uh, at Augusta for the first major tournament of the year to meet all the important people. And I came back for the third time in 2000, 2010 and fourth time in 2011. And, you know, France spent three difficult years to beat for the Ryder Cup because 
Nobody could at that time imagine that France had the legitimacy to host the, the Ryder Cup. We had two good French players who played the Ryder Cup. We had a, a good course at the Golf National, but we had also great competitors like Spain, like Portugal, like uh, Germany. And I remember the, the, the decision announced by George O'Grady to tell which uh, country will uh, host the Ryder Cup was the, uh, the 17th May of 2011. So uh, when I came to Augusta, only one month before uh, the announcement, it was very special because uh, it was really the, the last month before the announcement and all the countries were trying to uh, convince the owner of the, uh, of the right that their bid was the best. And uh, I have a good friend. This friend is Dermot Desmond, and he has helped me a lot during the bidding process because he really gave me good lesson to learn all the code of the Ryder Cup. And he gave me many, many very good advice. And in 2011, I remember all the countries Germany, but Portugal and, and Spain, they were trying to uh, speak each time with George O'Grady. George O'Grady was uh, at that time in, in Augusta and all the federations wanted to speak with George because they know that George would have the final decision at the end. And I remember Dermot told me, Pascal, you will not speak with George during all Augusta. And I said, but, you know, I, I can't do that. I am here for, for my lobbying. I, I want to uh, convince George. I want to speak with uh, all the influent people to help me to, to get this uh, opportunity to host the Ryder Cup. And he said, no, Pascal, you will not speak to George O'Grady. I will do that for you. And, you know, I, I knew Dermot. Dermot was a close friend, but, you know, he was... Uh, He was Irish and uh, I didn't know. Yes, I was sure that I could trust him, but it was a huge responsibility for me. But Dermot was such a close friend that, uh, you know, I, I had to, uh, to do what he, he told me to, to do, you know. And uh, during all Augusta, he had absolutely no conversation with George. And I remember every night we had dinner with Dermot in his house, because Dermot always rent a house close to Augusta. But as soon as uh, Scott Kelly and George O'Grady were arriving, usually around uh, 8, 8.30, Dermot was telling me, Pascal, you leave. And each time I had to leave, and uh, Dermot was alone with George O'Grady and Scott Kelly, and he was convinced them that France was the best destination to host the Ryder Cup. And he did a fantastic job during all that time. And George, each time George was asking to Dermot, but why when I'm coming, Pascal is leaving? And Dermot was saying, you know, Pascal is always tired and he had a very difficult day. And, 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 and you know, he, he wanted to leave. And, and George, during all that, couldn't understand why each time I didn't want to speak with him. But behind the scene, Dermot was doing the, the job. And I remember the Germans, they were spending times with George. Spain was doing the, the same thing. Portugal was doing the, the same thing. And I was not allowed 
to approach George at all because Dermot was doing the job. And you know, it was, it, I remember this uh, Augusta 2011 because I was there for my lobbying, but in fact, I did nothing because Desmond Dermot did everything for me. Irishman to Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> and it has worked. Uh, it seemed to work. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all about having the right friends, Pascal. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Camaraderie and friendship. Yeah, totally, totally. Great story. And um, I mean, that takes us on, I guess, to a little bit of the reason The reason we've been privileged to go is for business. And what a meeting ground when all of golf comes together in, uh, in April normally. And if that tree could speak, it could tell some phenomenal tales, I'm, uh, I'm sure. We, for so many years, we gathered under the tree and now the meetings <laughs> moved up the first fairway to the Magnolia Suite, but a, a great meeting ground and a great place for for many of those stories. I think you, I think your suggestion of having the tree mic'd up Ian is is the snoop of the year, particularly <laughs> as uh, particularly as uh, I think there's certain people still trying to contest an American presidential election. So I think if the tree could speak, uh, it it would, as you say, it would have. All of the golfing stories and the folklore, probably going right back to Clifford Roberts himself and and, uh, and Bobby Jones. Certainly, one of the most special memories I have of uh, well, and one of the most special things we you know each time we're lucky to to attend is that Wednesday evening cocktail party that the Masters hosts so well. Again, to be able to look out over the golf course in the peace and quiet of that evening, in many ways. And have yeah. the privilege of standing under the uh, under the tree. That's always a highlight for me um, w- when we're able to attend. And uh, it's a, obviously that's one of the, sh- the shames about uh, where we are this week. But uh, nonetheless, extremely excited about what tomorrow brings. We all look forward to it, and I think it's it's a highlight in a very difficult year for all of us around the world. When the fact that we're going to be looking at Augusta and, and the great players that will be there and the excellent tournament, and it will bring memories back to all of us, but it will be positive memories, and, and as I say, we're living in this time when you know, you've got a stress point nearly every day in your life, because something pops up. I'm fed up reading the news, I'm not looking at news anymore, because I know, I know there's nothing positive, but looking at Augusta over the next few days is very positive for us all. Totally, totally. So, a November Masters, how do we think it's going to, is it going to play differently? from what, what we've seen before. And obviously, we wouldn't be able to conduct a, um, a podcast this week without talking about the impact of, of distance that, that seems to obviously have come to the fore more than ever. I was watching the, the coverage a little last night and they were saying how interesting it was to be watching the players on the practice ground and not one of them working on technique with their, with their coaches. It, it all seems to be about strategy this week against I guess for some the difference between April and now and and also this whole strategy as to whether they're putting 48 or 47 and a half inch drivers or 48 inch drivers in in, in the bag any any thoughts from from any of you about how that might play out well I think the players of today you know are so intelligent on their strategy and course management they're way ahead of how that used to be for everybody and I think that they're not going to go out there and just lash it around and get into all sorts of difficult positions so I think they all have all got the plan on how to work their way around that golf course just like save his targets uh, and I think 
they've all got that ability now and they've certainly got the, the skills to play the game at that level and control it. So I don't I know a lot of people say it's all about just bashing it around, but I don't think Augusta is just a bashing around golf course. So these guys have worked it out. It won't be drivers out the bag all the time because they'll never be always in the right position. It'll be very interesting to, to see, Ian. And uh, I think the story that Sandy told so wonderfully of, of that experience with Seve all of those years ago will, will still come into play. What Seve said to Sandy is very similar to how Nick Faldo always saw, yeah. I think, in Augusta, like a chessboard. And unquestionably, there are those, and you mentioned the era, the Woods era from 97, Mickelson with his three wins. Those players, I think, are among a small coterie of experienced players and great players who could putt the Augusta Greens virtually blindfolded. I know we had a wonderful ladies' European tour event in Dubai last week under floodlights. And I'm not for a moment thinking we'll ever have a Masters <laughs> under floodlights, but I do think I do think in a, a slightly similar way you could put blindfolds on Phil and Tiger, and they would still putt beautifully. They'd hope they'd still hold a lot of medium distance putts because they'd be in the right place with their approach play. I think that will still remain a, a real key. Uh, I think we saw last year with Kepka, Dustin Johnson, with probably Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, all finding now a way to play the Augusta National and get very, very close. I know last year was the renaissance uh, of Tiger Woods, brought so much joy to to, uh, so many in golf and, and indeed including his peers. But I would think this year, I was chatting with Neil Coles earlier in the week, and Neil just now feels it's probably a bridge, maybe a bridge too far for, for Phil and Tiger to win again, because as he puts it, uh, and, and I think as Sandy has alluded to it, that there are now so many great players, all very, very capable. We saw that with Colin Morikawa, a young American player winning uh, the PGA on the West Coast. And we've seen what DeChambeau has done to Wingfoot, which uh, Pascal has as mentioned earlier, and it may very well be that, as, as he says, you can get a Wingfoot merchandise shirt any day, any day of the year. But of course, not many, not many players have tried to tackle Wingfoot in the past in the <laughs> way that DeChambeau did uh, so successfully uh, at this year's U.S. Open. So it will be very interesting to see if his, uh, if he brings out that the longest of all drivers. And if he does try to power it into submission, I'm hoping, as rather Seve and, and said to Sandy, and Sandy has uh, reiterated on our podcast tonight, that maybe that will not, Augusta will not just subside as, as indeed Wingfoot did to the brute power. I mean, obviously, we live in a world of data and statistics, and um, uh, it was interesting to see the... Um, the kind of stuff that's been uh, around suggesting it's a second shot golf course and the people who are best in strokes gained through the approach shots seem to be hugely successful and that's why it was very interesting to hear from Sandy about Sebi saying you set up the second shot by the tee shot obviously and then you've got to be able to execute the second shot and I just think it's as you say it's going to be interesting to see from where they're playing the second shots and whether they can still have that degree of control because they've got to get it in exactly the right place. Any thoughts, Pascal? I think that uh, you, you said uh, everything, 
for sure, the longest drive will be a huge advantage because the, the greens are so difficult to attack that it's always better to play pitching wedge than having a seven iron or something else. So yes, for the long hitters, it will be a huge, huge advantage. And in wing foot, you had rough. In uh, Augusta, there is no rough, so it's even uh, easier for the long uh, hitters. Well, on that, I guess it would be remiss not to make some predictions. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start it off. I'm going three J's. Justin Thomas, Jason Day, and John Rahm. Just to get us started. Predictions from others? Dustin Johnson, if, you know, he played well last week. It's the kind of course which can be uh, good for him. And uh, yes, Dustin Johnson, if I if I may, maybe. Very good. Sandy? Yeah, well, I've got to say, I think Ram is my favourite this week. I just have a feeling for him that he can get through this one this time. And I think he deserves it. Uh, there was a time when he started at the beginning. I wasn't sure on him because he always seemed to make an error somewhere along the way. But it looks like he's got control of things now. And I really think that he could he could be the man this week. Uh, Thomas, I'm not so sure about. I'm not sure he's quite got that game or uh, the mentality to come through when he gets in a winning position. I'm not sure about him at all. And I was looking back when Webb Simpson had such a close thing last year. And you do wonder, do you think he could do it again this year? Probably not. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he appeared in that running towards the end. Webb Simpson would obviously be an interesting one as he, he wouldn't be a player particularly associated with length off the tee. So it would be, uh, would be very interesting. The, weather, the way the weather is, cold wind of, you know, in the wrong direction for them, making the course more difficult. So we'll just need to wait and see how that all unfolds. But the one thing I think we're going to guarantee ourselves is a very entertaining and very interesting week of golf to watch. I think it's it's all on the page for us and I'm going to enjoy watching it. Over to you, Kev. Yes, uh, Ian, the, the, the two R's for Europe, uh, John Ram and Justin Rose. I, I know Justin has yes. not had the best 18 months uh, or, or so. I understand that. But I think he got ever so close. He did get one hand on that green jacket, didn't he, when he lost in the playoff to Sergio. It's a yeah. pity, great pity that Sergio... Uh, will not be there due to COVID. But uh, I think Justin Rose normally puts the Augusta Greens very, very well. Yes, so I've got a feeling that he could be uh, a European uh, challenger along with John Ram, who I think is Europe's outstanding chance for the 2020 Masters. I also think Fleetwood could be just running in quite quietly. Hope so. Yeah. I think he could do that nicely. Sometimes he seems to lose his focus a little bit, but I think if he's got it, I think he's got a chance. What we do know is, uh, gentlemen, it will be a very big ask for all of the Europeans. We know how capable the European and indeed the international players are, but this 2020 truncated season seems to have thrown up a, re a regeneration of great American power with Johnson with Kepka and now with DeChambeau. Yeah, I think that's a, an absolutely correct observation, Ken, as, as you always are. But I think that's absolutely spot on. Fingers crossed. Well, Ken, I would have to have great allegiance with the two you've mentioned, and they both share initials with my son. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> both JRs. So, uh, yeah, I'm all for that. Well, it's been great chatting. I'm sure we could chat for a lot, lot longer. It's uh, always a pleasure to, um, to be sharing stories with the three of you. 
thoroughly enjoyable. Any uh, final comments before we, we close maybe, this? Maybe, Jan, if you allow me, I have one. As a French, I would like to speak about the seller of uh, Augusta. Maybe nobody knows, but it's maybe the best in the world because you have all the best French wines. But <laughs> since more than 50 years, they have allocations of the best premier Grand Cru in France. And it's, you know, it's something absolutely amazing. And when I came for the first time in 2007, the, I had the opportunity to visit the cellar. And it was the first time in my life that I have seen all premier Grand Cru in each size of, of bottles. So you have, uh, you know, half bottle, bottles, you have Giroboam, you have all the different size of bottle in the best wine and the best Grand Cru, the French Grand Cru. And I think that I have never seen that in any place in the world. How appropriate to finish this at uh, 10 to 7 at night. <laughs> 10 to 8 your French, time, uh, Pascal, with, uh, with mention of wine. And uh, we can all go and enjoy one now. But to wrap things up, this has been thoroughly enjoyable to host this, uh, this podcast. A big thank you to the three of you, Pascal, Sandy, Ken, for all that you do for us at CPG. And and for your time this evening. It's certainly inspired us, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be a, a fantastic uh, tournament ahead. So thanks again. Thank you for listening to the latest CPG podcast episode. Make sure you share it with your friends and colleagues, give it a rating, and if you don't already, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening platform is. And we'll see you next time for another episode.